so I, I forget stuff. But I think I knew this. But Wesley, uh, I'm, don't, I'm, not, I'm not becoming like a stealth Methodist, although I did quite like it. And he was quite a rebel, actually. He established the Methodist church from within the Anglican church. And, and the Anglicans banned him from preaching um, because he was going about doing his own thing. Kind of actually like secretly appealed to me, <laughs> rebellious thing. Um, but he, you know, obviously we see his proliferation of chapels, which are now being sold off actually around the country. Um, it didn't just happen, you know, like there's a move of God's spirit, but it didn't just happen overnight. He rode. 250,000 miles on a horse. I think it was probably a few horses, to be fair. And, and he preached something like 88,000 documented sermons. I mean, he was a machine. Um, and that, that's, that's how you build something. You know, you, you know, you just go at it, and then God breathes into it. But the thing I, I, I'd forgotten, which I think I knew, was that Wesley, at the end of his life, do you know what his last words were? Anyone know? I'm tired, was what he said just before. He said what I'm going to say. It's like, oh, for goodness sake. No, he probably did say at one point. He said, the best thing of all, God is with us. That was his last words. I thought, amazing. Go through your whole of your life, serving the Lord, and you're about to die. And with the last breath that you got, you say, the best thing of all, God is with us. I mean, I found that so inspiring. I'd probably be saying, Annie, pass me the apple ties. And then, you know, <laughs> that'd be it. You know, probably some rubbish thing I'll say. But he was so consumed with the presence of God. I, I love that. I think, wow, if, you know, if we can hold these things as a church, you know, we're pursuing God's presence, pursuing truth, acting with grace, believing with everything we've got that the gospel changes lives, uh, committing everything we've got to it with all our breath. Wherever we are, as I'm going to come on to explain in a moment, it could be running a business, it could be a teacher, it could be, you know, home looking after your kids, whatever it is, with all our breath, we like God first. And the best thing of always is with us. I think he'll carry us through life quite well. I think it, I think it just pleases the Lord. Anyway, Andy Kind... All one word, just to keep that box ticked. Last week, finished the series on Matthew. And we only took 15 years. Even though the church only been going four and a half. It was like a real weird thing. And, and the next thing we're going to do in September is I'm just started to um, divide up the book of James. So if you, if you did want to do a little bit of pre-reading, uh, you know, get into that book. It's got some really important things to say to us. In the meantime, over summer, whilst people are variously holidaying and getting coming back with suntans, um, which will include me in August, I'll have you know, um, going to go to you know Essex for a little holiday, um, South End. Uh, yeah, I know, it's just subtropical. Um, I, we're going to do our sort of various favourite passages, or you know, each, like preachers are going to select whatever they want to do. And mine is in Ephesians, and it's Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. Now, there are some Bibles over there if anyone wants one, or you can get it up on your phone. Um, but I thought there were some quite important things uh, to be said to us through this. Um, 
you'll know my story, I'm sure, many of you, some of you don't, and I'm not going to dwell on this hugely, but I will remind you. I, I, I obviously had my head buried in my IKEA armchair yesterday in my study, and um, I was remembering back, as I said earlier, what it was like when I first gave my life to Christ. I had Israel playing in the, back of the, in the background, as I said, and I remembered the moment, which is still so vivid to me, I'll never forget, standing on the steps of Emerson Park Evangelical Chapel, a Brethren Assembly, on the Ardley Green Road in Hornchurch, on the 22nd of April, 1990, having been convinced there was no God half an hour earlier, and then being touched by his presence, looking at a bush or a shrub on the other side of the road and seeing leaves on trees for the first time. Now, obviously, I'd seen leaves, but I remember weeping standing next to my mate Bigsy, saying, they are green. Green leaves. And he went, what? He went, the leaves are green. And the reason I say that, and the reason I'm reminding you, is because I think, and please don't be offended if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but I look back at that moment when I was 18, and I think it was the moment I first felt alive, felt alive, if I'm honest. Now, that could offend my parents, because I think they put lots of stuff into me to make sure that I was alive, like food and, and stuff and education. But it's the first time I felt alive in my soul. I remember driving home that night thinking, oh my gosh. I had a plan for my life. I'd applied to join the army because I wanted to fight. I was intending to join the army and fight for a bit, or pretend to and then leave and become a millionaire. I don't know how that was going to happen, but I was going to make it happen or die trying. Uh, I, I'm not saying that's why Karen married me, because she saw the potential for cash, but I think it was a feature, uh, because I was quite determined. Um, I then wanted to buy a couple of holiday homes and then essentially die. So um, that was my life plan. The day I met Jesus and I felt alive, everything changed. Like everything. My values changed. Some of that happened over time. My life trajectory started to change. The things I saw myself doing changed. Everything. And let me say that you can sit here today with all kinds of dreams and all kinds of hopes and all kinds of ambitions. But when you truly submit all your life to Christ, be prepared that some of them might stay because some of them could have been for the Lord, even though you didn't know him. But many may change. And the way to find true life, I think, is to yield those dreams and your life to Christ. And let me explain by reading this passage. This is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It's quite harsh in one sense and beautiful in others. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also used to live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
just to explain this very quickly, the Bible is basically saying, without your life being in Christ, you're dead. Which is, a hot, I mean, like spiritually, you're dead. Now you might think, hold on, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I don't feel very dead. I actually feel quite alive. Or you could even be a Christian and think, actually, I feel still quite dead, which is possible. You could be feeling, sitting here today actually feeling quite dead in yourself. The actual Greek word, for those of you scholarly people, is necros, which is a horrible word. You are dead, necros. In other words, spiritually, you're a corpse. This is not a pulling punches passage when you look at it like that. And it says that even if you don't know it, if your life isn't in Christ, you're basically under the influence of the devil. You're basically under the influence of Satan, whether you know it or not. Now, again, that could be quite offensive if you're sitting there and you're not a follower of Jesus. So far, this bloke, Carl, has stood up and said, I'm like a corpse and I'm following the devil. Well, there's some good news coming. But so far, that's what it's saying. It's pretty harsh. And then what he's saying is, because of that, you deserve the wrath of God. I mean, the Bible, which we believe with all our hearts here, is, is not an easy read when you apply it full on and you believe it. It's saying that without Christ, you're deserving God's anger, and his wrath and his judgment, and you're dead, and you're under the influence of Satan. I think we better read on, because that's a bit depressing. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. So it starts to get a little bit better. In fact, a whole lot better. Then it even like, it ups again. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order in the coming ages, in order in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you know, I just had a memory flash into my mind then. When I got my first job in London, when I was going to this Brethren Chapel, I mean, they were like, I would describe proper Christians. I mean, they're like church twice on a Sunday, prayer meetings, Bible studies. Everyone fastidiously studied their Bible. The only thing that was missing a little bit was joy. Like they didn't often look very happy. And uh, everyone wore suits and, um, and generally looked like actually they were ready to die. <laughs> but they loved the Lord. But they, they properly understood the sovereignty of God. And what I mean by that is, they knew that everything came from him. They knew it. I mean, they really knew that. They knew that every breath they took was from God. They knew that every penny in their pocket was from God. And there were loads of leaders and people there, like massively sacrificed careers and, you know, and advancement and big houses and, because they really knew it was all from God. And I, I got this first job in London and it was a good job, it was a bit of a peachy number, to be honest. And I, I, I'm not saying I was boasting about it, but I was letting people know. And, and, and this guy took me aside 
you know, like in this sort of like fatherly, but slightly like, oh, young man, kind of way. And he said, you do realise, don't you, that God gave you that job? I was like, well, I thought I did quite well in the interviews, actually. He said, God, God gave you that job. And if God didn't want you to have that job, you wouldn't have that job. Actually, gave me the right hump. It did. So I thought, no, I filled in a massive application form. And I beat all these Oxford graduates of this job. I hustled my way in with the gift of the gab and everything else. And I blagged it and I got the job. And it's going, I'm going to earn loads of money. It was only years later I realised he was right. Like, you, you even sit here because of God. You, you run a business because of God. You, you kids because of God. You're in a relationship because of God. You kids because of God. And, you know, many preachers carry, carry different things, you know, and they keep going on about. And when I look back over my old sermons, I think there's two things I'll probably go on about much the annoyance of people. One thing is God's heart for justice and the poor, which probably annoys loads of people. I just don't stop going on about it. It probably winds people up. I know that. But the second thing is that knowledge that actually we've got nothing apart from him. Like, I really know that now. Like I don't know what clicked in my head, but, I, but years ago I realised even nanosecond by nanosecond, you only sit here by God's grace. Like everything, Every, everything. Now I know bad stuff happens, but the fact you even exist to go into the bad stuff is because God's grace, like, you know, and he will work things for good. The Bible says that. But that's what he's saying here. You know, we, we don't boast in anything other than Christ. You know, we, we have nothing apart from him. We, we can't earn God's love. You, you, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more, as Philip Yancey famously said. There's no striving, you know, going to more Bible studies, you know, won't do it. Giving more money, won't, won't do it. Volunteering for more things, you know, although I do think if you go on the kids' road, there'll be a special smile upon you. Um, I, you know, but actually, God just loves you. And the reason you go to Bible studies or you give or you turn up to stuff or you prioritize the kingdom is because you know that God loves you. I, people say, you know, some people think that evangelists do what they do, like me, because there's this urgency you know, about hell, and, and that's true. And there's a desperation to see people come to Christ, that's true. And God does things in your heart. It stirs you to want to tell people that's true. But do you know the main reason why I do what I do? When I drill it down... Jesus loves me. He loves me. I know he loves me. Even when I've been a div. He loves me. Even when I've been all chippy. And I'm upsetting people, he loves me. When I've not been a good husband, he still loves me. I let my kids down, he still loves me. And he still loves you. And the reason we do what we do is because God loves us. That's why this church is here. Nothing we can do to earn that. It's a free gift of God. And then it says this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let me, um, let me just put a marker in that. 
one of my favourite psalms in all the world, one that I've read over and over again when I'm doubting myself, I'm doubting God's with me, is Psalm 139. I want to read this as a bit of a meditation before we go any further, actually. I'm slightly departing, but I just feel this is good. I don't want to close your eyes and listen to this. This is this is this is this is David calling out the truth about who he is. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Just think on that. Knows everything about you. Everything. Everything. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. In other words, there is no circumstance, no location, no spiritual location where God's light cannot shine. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in a secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, or abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Let me read that again. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Beautiful words. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you're an accident. Or that we're a fluke. It's not true. Your Heavenly Father knows you inside out because he put you together. And there's a plan and a destiny for you. And that is a beautiful thing. And the reason why Paul 
I think, is so harsh at the start of this passage is a desperation for people to know the grace and love of God. He, he, because in Ephesus at that time, it was like, it was the hotbed of the magic arts. Like in Acts 19, there's a famous story, isn't there? The sons of Sceva driving out demons and they get beaten up because they overpower. They're driving out demons in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches and they get beaten up. And Paul preaches the gospel and they repent and it says people have got rid of their scrolls and their magic spells. And, and that was in Ephesus. Ephesus was a hotbed of hedonism and people pursuing the flesh. That's what he's saying here. You know, the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the kingdom of the air is Satan. And it says that his spirit is at work in those who are disobedient. And, you know, in Ephesus, that would have been quite obvious because people have been out boozing all the time, casting the odd spell, playing around with demons, equivalent to Ouija boards and stuff, and they practiced temple prostitution. In fact, they built a mighty temple, which was, which was proclaimed to have been one of the wonders, or they want to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. I have a picture of a mock-up. That's, that's not our new building, much as I would like it to be. That would be quite something, wouldn't it? What you don't know is where the donut roundabout's being transformed, we're building that, and we just didn't want to tell you until now. Uh, that is the temple of Artemis, where they worship the goddess Diana, the goddess of fertility. And in the temple were, were multitudes, the temple prostitutes. The temple prostitutes were priestesses. They did the first two years as prostitutes, like sex cult. They put all their earnings into the temple for the first two years. People would flock to it. And so you need to understand why Paul is saying what he's saying. He's saying what he's saying because he's in Ephesus where everyone's like at it. And people are like, they're getting their heads done in. And they're pursuing the flesh. And he's trying to call it out. I mean, he's a brave guy. But it's obviously a letter to them. Saying, look, this is what you used to be, but now you're not. You used to be dead. This, is, this, is, this was your life. Now, we might not have a temple like Artemis, but we've got other things. Like, we are, we are so distracted these days. It's unbelievable. And we suffer, us people, of something called the law of diminishing returns. I was with a mate. I once cycled the garden route of South Africa. A thousand kilometers in eight days. It was horrible. Um, most of the cycle rides I've done are actually brutal and horrible. At one particular pit stop, there was a bridge. It's a famous bridge, but I've forgotten the name of it. And underneath the bridge was a bungee jump into a ravine. You know, it was like, it was ridiculous. It was like, you know, thousands of feet. And my mate is really into this stuff. Skydiving, bungee jumping, mad cycle rides. And he said, do you want to do it? I'm like, no, not really. Anyway, he went and did it. And um, he flung himself off, holding a GoPro camera, filming himself. Uh, I mean, if it were me, everything would have gone flying. But he, he filmed himself. And then he showed me the footage. And do you know what? He looked bored. He was actually bored. He was. He was like going down like this. Like, just like free-falling. In like the world's biggest bungee jump, bored. 
And I said, do you know why you're bored? He went, no. He went, because you've done too much of it. What's next? What's next? What's next? And that's what happens. It's, it's, it's human nature. Like you try and gratify the flesh, it'll never satisfy. You'll never get there. The next business deal, the next big ultra challenge, or sex. It's why people get sucked into stuff in porn. Like Ted Bundy, he said he committed murders. He became a serial killer. He started looking at porn and he just took him down the route. He just wasn't satisfied anymore. So he got more and more weird and more and more bizarre. Now, it doesn't happen to everyone, but it happens to a lot of people. It's the law of diminishing returns. And actually what Paul's trying to do here is help us. He's trying to say, beware of the flesh. Satan and your sin will take you to places you don't want to go. Look, they, built, they didn't build a Redeemer King sign. They built a big temple in a pursuit of gratification. That's actually probably what it was. And it's happening in our day and age now. And honestly, I think, I fear for the, like, I'm glad I hear that the generation under millennials are starting to reject social media. Did you hear that? Did you know that? Apparently, like, it's like Generation X and stuff, are, like, and millennials are a bit mad in it. In fact, if you go to my, um, if you go to my Twitter feed, I just as a quick aside, I put a little film up, and it's ironic, but I put a little, I put a little film up of millennials trying to dial an old telephone. And they can't do it. Honestly, it goes on for three minutes. They're like, how does it? They can't do it. It's the funniest thing. You know, I'll try and post it on Facebook. It's one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, anyway, so the more adrenaline you pump yourself with, the more you try and pursue, the less the itch will be scratched and the more it will take you to a place you don't want to go. And I think there's an agenda. It's a distraction agenda by Satan to take you off your true purpose, which is why I think this passage at verse 10 ends with that. Anyway, suffice to say, here's the truth, and many of you know it, but I do think it's a good reminder, only Jesus Christ is going to satisfy you. No, he is. Like I mean it. Only he will give rest to your soul, only he will give you peace, only he will scratch the itch. You can, when we take our eyes off the ball, this is what I do, I take my eyes off the ball, I stop pursuing Christ as wholeheartedly as I used to. I forget where I come from and I, and I try and fill the gap with other stuff. I see Christians fall into it all the time. It could be drink, it could be sport, it could be ninjutsu, even golf. But people take their eyes off the ball and they stop finding their satisfaction in Christ. I'm not saying don't play golf, even though I do think it's a satanic game. Um, and I, you know, I'm not saying don't, don't do kung fu or whatever. What I'm, or maybe, I don't know. What I'm saying is, keep your priority and keep your eyes focused on Christ and keep your gaze lifted up. There was a, an old hymn by Lauren Hemel, not that old, 1922. I've been, I've been humming this loads lately. Uh, the Michael W. Smith album, Worship, which is years old from the 90s, is, is beautiful for this. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim. What in? In the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. The things of earth grow strangely dim. Because what happens with me is, and I just need to be honest about it, what happens with me is, I take my eyes off the ball in that regard. And I think, you know, I don't even consciously process it, but I get into something else. 
you know, it could be, he could even be like trying to hustle a deal in Christian ministry or <laughs> a project or something. But the project becomes more important than my faith. You know, the, you know, I could, I, I've just nailed this way of doing watercolors. And I get a bit more obsessive about that than I do Christ. And what happens is I, my, my eyes are very subtly being taken off the prize of Jesus. And I need to remind myself that only he scratches the itch. And I, I need to remind myself how loved I am. And I have a saviour die for me. Which is what I was doing last night. It's going to be a constant battle for us. Um, I just want to say this. I have said it before. But... Over the last nine months, I have never been so acutely aware as when I'm in the flesh and when I'm in the spirit. I know now, through circumstance, when I'm feeling all like, <clears throat> and when I'm flowing in the peace of Christ. And when you're in the flesh, it can momentarily satisfy you. Like, you know, allowing yourself to feel all bitter and twisted and like chipped up and annoyed. Oh, you know, because it, it like it, if you allow yourself there for like a little bit of time, it can satisfy. You ever found that? Like, you know, if you get a horrible email and you, you draft one back, you ever done that? Don't send it. But when you you ever drafted like a response to something, or even in your head, is it, is it just me? And like, and you feel really good about it. Like, oh, I don't, I don't put that right. And like for a moment, it feels really good. It won't the next day. You feel terrible the next day. But I've known now when I'm in the flesh, when I'm in the spirit. And that, that's what he's saying here. You know, don't, don't follow the way of Satan. Remember, you're seated with Christ. You're seated with Christ. Like you're in his grip. You want to feel like that when you go up this morning. But you're seated with Christ. And the punchline is, there is a plan for you. And the devil, I think, wants to snatch that away. He doesn't want you to step into your destiny. But I believe... That all of you, whether you are 90,000 years old or three, there's a purpose that God put you on the planet for. And some of you have found it, some of you haven't. Some of you have lived it, and now it's time to help others. But some of you might be sitting there and think, well, I've just got so many purposes I could live for. Well, that could be true. Maybe your purpose is business. Maybe it's music, maybe it's education, maybe it's raising great kids, maybe it's being a vet, could be anything. But when it's given over to God, that's what brings it alive. The reason I'm saying this is, pastorally, I don't want anyone ever being a part of this church and thinking that God has put you on the shelf. Or thinking that there is no purpose for you. Or thinking that my work, God doesn't like my work. No, that's not true. Joan the Bible, one of my favourite characters, is Bezalel. He was like a craftsman. He was a builder bloke. God anointed for the, with the spirit and gifted him to build the Ark of the Covenant. Until I read that as a young man, I thought, who knew? that God could anoint someone to be a carpenter. Like it's all from God. See what I'm saying? Don't ever think that God's put you on the shelf. Don't ever think that God has no purpose for you or that God isn't interested in what you're doing. 
I mentioned a meeting recently, a letter I got sent to me, um, which I want to read out, because I think this explains it brilliantly. Um, it's from a man called Andy Roby. He said this, Hi Carl, you may not remember me. When I first started reading, I didn't. As I read on, I did. But I just felt the need to drop you an email to say the words you spoke to me when you visited St Mary's Watford in late 2007 were spot on. Some of you heard me read this before, but it's important for today. I was dithering about whether to go to Indonesia with my wife Eileen and my youngest daughter Megan to help tackle illegal logging there. This is a man who is a forester. And you might think, well, is there a God's call on a man to be a forester? Well, evidently, there is. He said this. You said, and I paraphrase, I think it's all right, I think this is the right thing for you to do, this is from God. And he went, he was a terrible uh, first year. I know some of you heard me read this before, but it is important. It took him nine years, not three. He nearly wrecked his life. <laughs> I don't want laughing at that. I felt quite bad when I read that bit. Um, but basically, he saved 23 million hectares of wood, woodland. He boosted exports to Europe by 100 million a year. He brought thousands and thousands of jobs into Indonesia. Indonesia became the first country to meet EU standards for uh, legal timber. And then he got um, uh, a Queen's Birthday Honours with a British Empire Medal for services to reduce deforestation in recognition of this work. And then it ends by saying, glory be to God. I just want you to know in the tough times, which are many, I was strengthened and encouraged by knowing that this is all to God's glory. And it's sense that it was right 12 years earlier, although there is much more to be done. Do you know, you could be a teacher, a builder, a businessman, a social worker, you could be unemployed, you could be a property expert, you could be a, a town developer, an architect, an entrepreneur, retired, salesman, carpenter, royal mail worker, banker, Chatsworth estate employee, anything, running a printing company, Washing the pots. You could be anything and do it for the glory of God and be fulfilling an amazing godly purpose if you give it to him. And who knows what you can do when you do. The enemy wants to distract you and pursue the flesh. But God wants you to be released into his purposes. It's as simple as that. There is a unique purpose that you were created for. And all that God's calling us to do is yield our lives to him, follow him, submit to him, put our faith and trust in him, and he will take you to places that are different to where sin and the flesh will take you. Put it this way. Like, I feel like I've, you know, in some sense, it's quite a bizarre life. My daughters are never quite able to explain to people what I do. Um, but what I do do could not have been written about in some careers lecture at school. Just an ordinary bloke who said, all right, I, I yield my life to you.
Let's see where the adventure takes us. And wherever I've been, I've been wholehearted on that. Whether it's a local pastor working in a men's ministry or, or whatever, just pour my heart in and say, would you use me? I'll make sure I keep trying to look up. And I don't do it all the time. I, I, my eyes come off the prize. They do. The prize of Christ, I, I, I get distracted. Things pull me away. But when I, when I do put my eyes on him, then life seems to become clearer. The things on earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'd love to pray for a moment. When you think about the things that God's called you to, well, what is your purpose? He's probably given you skills and talents. You know, the other thing that I thought was, it might be that you started to walk out into God's purposes and then you let it go. But things, life happened and you let it go. Or, or, you know, hurts happened and you let it go. It's easy to do that. Just while you're sitting there reflecting, it's easy to get hurt and walk away. Do not think that people like me don't ever get tempted to walk away. Of course we do. Don't ever think. There are times over the last year you think, oh, I just chuck the towel in. Of course you do. But things hold you in. You love a God. Jesus loves me. And you love the people. And God gave you a vision. So you never quit on a vision. You can't unsee what God has shown you. Once God has shown you something, you cannot unsee it. Do you know what I mean? So get that thing back in your head again, that thing that God gave you. You can't unsee what God once showed you. The thing to do is to put your eyes and your focus on heaven. Look to Jesus. You are seated with him. It means you're in his grip. I don't believe that those who are truly given their hearts to Christ will ever be unseated.